as I was speaking about um, essentially the Tarvers going and planting a church there in Utah, it's interesting because we find ourselves in a place in First John this morning where we're going to talk about how, how we can tell the difference between someone who really believes in the Jesus of the Bible and who, someone who is not actually a follower of, of Jesus. And so as you turn in your Bibles to First John chapter 2, you'll remember with me that the reason that John was writing was number one in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, that your joy may be full. And so uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'm writing so that you may not sin. I'm writing so that you can be led out of sin. He says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I'm writing that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may understand that there is security in Jesus and that you can know that you have eternal life this side of heaven. And so in the second part of that verse, he says, I write to you that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, for those that believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, I would tell you that the Bible does teach that. Once God saves you, you are saved, you're set, you're secure for heaven. Jesus paid it all, he did it all, he's going to hold on to you as long as you abide as long as you abide in him. So that even in verse 13 of chapter 5, we get this picture that God has done everything to procure heaven for us, to seal us, to sign, seal, deliver, deliver us, and we're his. And at the same time, we have this responsibility to continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Not just what his name is. His name is what his character is wrapped up in. To understand that Jesus is who he said he was and he proved it, in his death, burial, and resurrection. But he also wrote this to deal with false prophets and their false testimony concerning Jesus. There were people coming in and saying things and doing things that really had nothing to do with Jesus himself. And then he wrote it to remind them that Jesus will return. So John reveals conflict in the church in order to warn us. Now, if you love your children, you warn them about things that will hurt them, correct? And, and thank you, Toby, because I want to tell you guys, I forgot to say this, if it gets hot in here, uh, shut those things there. That's why we got them. Toby fries just about every week. Anyway, so John reveals conflict to us, and he reveals the conflict between what we say we believe and what we actually believe. He, in chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 6, he contrasts between darkness and light. And we went over that umpteen times. If you say that you walk in the light, and yet you walk in darkness practically, then you're a liar and the truth's not in you. And so God shines his light graciously upon us in order to show us you're not really what you say you are. And then he uh, contrasts love and hatred. If you say you love me, and yet you don't. He, he gives that in chapter 2, verse 7 through 17. And then he contrasts this next section between truth and error. Now, here's the deal with error. Many times, people make errors trying to do the right thing, right? You can do that typing an email. You can do that with autocorrect on your cell phone. The reality is we could try to do the right thing and actually be an error. We can be deceived. So I like what Warren Wearsby said. He said, it's not enough for a believer to walk in the light and to walk in love. He must also walk 
and truth. And if you look at John chapter 4, Jesus spoke with a woman at the well. It's a very famous story. And while he was speaking with her, he says, God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so, you know, with the woman at the well, she was there and she was worshiping. She worshiped God and yet she was worshiping falsely because the one place to worship in that day was at the Temple Mount. And yet he's saying that God doesn't just want us to worship in, in truth, but also in spirit. So we need to understand that the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom to worship God, but we also need to believe the truth. You can't just believe one thing and live another way. And so truth is important. And you think about it, Jesus said, those who follow me will know the truth, and the truth that they know will actually set them free. And so... Um, as we continue in 1 John chapter 2, John having just spent some time talking about not having a love for the world, and he says, but he who does the will of God, in verse 17, will, will abide forever. So in verse 18, he says, little children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they may be manifest that they were not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So in verse 18, he uses two key phrases. One is the last hour, and then the other is Antichrist. Now, in the political realm right now, there are many on both sides. Uh, the last uh, election, not for Trump, but for Obama, there are many conservatives that says Obama is the Antichrist. And then now that we have a conservative president, you've got the left saying that Trump is the Antichrist. But here's the reality. Neither one of them is the Antichrist. They might follow the spirit of Antichrist, but what is he talking about here? Is he talking about politically, or is he talking about the spirit? Now, no matter what side of the political fence you're on, I don't care. What matters in life is what you believe about Jesus. And so he talks about this last hour, and it's a phrase that describes a kind of time, not a duration of time. Now, we're going to look here in a little bit, but... In 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has described the time that we're speaking about here in 1 John. So in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he describes it. It says there, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, or in the latter days, some will depart from the faith, 
I find that ironic because we were just talking about the Mormons. They call their church the Latter-day Saints. So in latter days, they even believe that we're in the latter times, but they have a lot of other things really messed up. He says, in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There's that word know again. He says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So he goes on in verse 6 and says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good servant. That's what minister means, servant. You'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. You'll be nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But he says, Reject profane and old wives' tales and exercise yourself toward godliness. So my point is that Paul describes the last days as this time where basically people will deny the truth. They'll be hypocritical. They'll follow all these doctrines of demons and they'll be deceived. So would you say that these are the times that we are in now? The latter times. Times where people are basically just like this described. But then later in life, Paul writes a letter to Timothy. And many believe that it was actually the last letter he wrote that's in the New Testament chronologically. And it's, isn't, isn't it kind of interesting that at the end of your life, you start getting a little more emboldened. You want to make sure that the things that you say stick with people. And Paul had this sense of urgency in the letter of 2 Timothy. So in chapter 3, he goes into more detail of these latter times. 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says to young Timothy, his disciple, he says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters. They will be proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control. They will be brutal. They will despise what is good. They will be traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will have a form of godliness, but they will deny its power. From such people, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households. They make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins. They are led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So interestingly enough, this describes the day that we live in even more accurately, don't you think? And so what's interesting is Paul didn't come up with this. The disciples were already taught about these last days that we live in, and every generation of the church has believed that Jesus' return is imminent today, just as it was 2,000 years ago. And here's the reality. It described 2,000 years ago, too. 
Mankind has always lived in darkness. We've always loved ourselves rather than God. We've always rejected sound advice and gone after the lusts of our own hearts. And, and Matthew chapter 24 tells us this. Jesus speaking 2,000 years ago said very close to the same thing. Matthew chapter 24. where it says this. Verse 1, it says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. His disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So he's standing outside of this temple. And I've seen this temple standing, been right outside the gate, looking at it, and I'm not even seeing what they were looking at at the day, at the, that day and age. In 70 AD, what Jesus said is not one stone of the temple would actually still be standing, and in 70 AD, that happened. They, they took all of the temple stones apart, and they were laying, many of the stones are still laying there today. But as they walked out of the temple, the disciples were just like, Jesus, look at this building. Isn't it magnificent? They were enamored with this great pinnacle of the Judeo faith, the Jewish faith. This was the place that they worshiped. And they said, Jesus, look how awesome this is. And Jesus looked at them and said, do you not see all these things? And of course they did because they just pointed him to them. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, can you imagine them sitting there going, how are they going to tear down this temple? The stones, many of them were hundreds of feet long. What do you mean this temple's going to be torn down? And then Jesus goes into this this, uh, dialogue and he explains to them, things that some of them they could understand, but some of them, even though he was telling them, they didn't have the ability to understand what he was saying. So as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is called the Olivet Discourse because of where he said it, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What he had said to them intrigued them. And so he said, this building's going to be torn down and the disciples are going, when? And so he answers them. In verse 4, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrows there means birth pangs. It's what happens when you're expecting and your water breaks and there's contractions and there's preparation for the woman to give birth. And so he's saying these things that I've just described will be signs of the end of the age on its way. Verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he's speaking of this time that the prophet Daniel said that a man will come. 
He will, be, he will be a man of sin, but he will announce himself, and the Jewish people of Israel that have all gone back into the land will make an agreement with him. He will become their leader, and at just the right time, he'll step into the temple, and having them deceived, will step into the temple, into the Holy of Holies that he's, a, he's been a part of rebuilding for them, because they will make an agreement, I promise you, with anyone that will rebuild their temple and set up their worship system again. Jesus told the people that were listening in his day, he said this, I have come in the authority of my Father. I've come in my own name, and you will not receive me. Did they receive him? No. But another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. They will make an agreement with someone that claims to be their Messiah, and at that point, when they are completely deceived and they've given him power to make these decisions, he'll step into the temple and he will proclaim himself to be God himself. And scripture tells us at that point, their eyes will be open and they'll go, what have we done? What have we done? And then it will be too late because things will already have been put in place. And so the last hour, these last times are described and we are in those last days. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, when Peter's proclaiming in his, in his big, um, on the day of Pentecost, he's, he's speaking to the Jewish people. I'm going to turn there so I don't misquote it. Acts chapter 2. Verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. These that are prophesying before you in languages, they are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this was the beginning of the last days, the days where the Spirit of God was poured out on all flesh, We are living in those days, this marvelous church age where all who come to God through faith in Jesus can be saved. And yet, even in our day, there are people coming and claiming to have deeper knowledge than what Jesus gave us. And so, Antichrist, it's set up to where Antichrist can come in. And so the question is, what does Antichrist mean? Well, Antichrist is a spirit in the world that opposes or denies Christ. The word antichrist actually means against or opposing to Christ, but it's a dual meaning word. It also means instead of Christ. And so in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, uh, we see this idea that antichrist can come onto the scene. I'm going to turn there real quick. Um, he's exhorting them to test the spirits 
And in verse 3, he says, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And in Genesis chapter 3, we also see the same thing. So Antichrist is a spirit in the world that opposes or denies Christ's lordship. And the false teachers who are the hands and feet of this spirit that opposes Christ. And he, Antichrist is also the person who will be at the head of the final world rebellion against Jesus Christ. So anti can mean against or instead of. Essentially a counterfeit messiah. And we don't necessarily think of counterfeit in these terms, but many times you hear, you get this idea, somebody starts handing out counterfeit bills and they take them to the bank. And of course, the bank's like, we can't do anything with this. And I have there for you a little picture I found off the Googles. It's just a big warning that a sheriff's department sent out and said, hey, beware, there's counterfeit money being passed in your area. Which is interesting because John's writing to the church to say, hey, beware, there's a counterfeit Jesus being passed around. And I want you to know the difference between the real and the fake. Because the real can give you life. The fake will make you feel comfortable all the way to hell. And so beware. Which is interesting because the Apostle Paul actually refers to this man of sin, this uh, antichrist. And so he says here in 1 John that you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and it's capital A. He's talking about the specific man of sin that will step into the temple. He will deceive the Jews, and then he will proclaim himself as God. But then he also says, even now many Antichrists have already come. This is instead of, this is against Christ. These are people that are wolves in sheep's clothing. So he's telling them, beware. So as we go on to verse 19, he starts to point out ways that you can tell if someone is of the spirit of Antichrist or of the spirit of Christ. And so easy, simple ways, and yet uh, we need to pay attention. He says in verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that is the most confusing sentence ever. I say that a lot. But there's a lot of sentences where it's like, wow, there's a lot there. So let's unpack it. Those who follow the spirit of error that are not subjected to Christ, they have no desire to be with or around other Christians. Now, many times if Satan can't fool you, he will join you. And he will come in. And just because you're in a church doesn't mean that everyone here believes in the Jesus that the Bible teaches, that the, the Jesus that Paul presents. And so he says they go out from us. They have no desire to be around other Christians. They might stick around for a little while, sow some discord, sow some disunity, uh, but they will depart eventually because they don't have anything in common with us. Um, fellowship with God leads to fellowship with each other. And fellowship means to have in common. So attending church doesn't save a person, and it doesn't keep a person saved. But remaining in fellowship with Christians is one evidence of many that a person is truly a Christian. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, it says, "...whoever hates his brother is a murderer." Excuse me. <laughs> he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. 
He who does not love his brother is actually dead already. He's still dead in his sins and trespasses. So counterfeit Christians will not remain in fellowship with other believers. They don't have anything in common with them. And what's interesting is many people will say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And while I will say that that's not all the way false, it is partially false. Because I don't know about you guys, but the people that I love, I want to be around. The people that I really have something in common with, I hang with. And in John chapter 13, verse 35, (laughs) Jesus even said that this is one way that people would know that we were his disciples is because we would have a love for other disciples of Jesus. And so know this, they went out from us so that God would reveal what they actually were. It's not always an indicator, but it's one. So continue in verse 20. He says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Now, teenagers, any teenagers in here? You're not saying that you know everything. My favorite phrase at 15 was, I know, Dad, and he hated it. This is not what he's saying. This word know in verse 20 actually is edo in the Greek. means to know by intuition. God gives us supernatural intuition by the Spirit of God, and it's almost like when you are with other believers and they say something that you know that you know is true. C.S. Lewis called it the ring of truth. They say something and it just resonates, and you're just like, yeah, they get it. And, and that's the same in the body of Christ. You've been anointed by the Spirit of God. He's poured out His Holy Spirit upon those who believe in Jesus. And you can get more of the Spirit, by the way. He says you can have way more of the Spirit if you just ask. But he says here, you have already an anointing from the Spirit, and you know all things. He says, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. It's that inner voice that God gives you when you know something is a lie. It's a check in your spirit. You might even call it your gut instinct. Now, if you don't hear the Spirit of God, your guts can lie to you. Now, I'm not talking about your innards. Those things never lie to you. <laughs> you got to obey those things. But what I'm saying is that here he's telling us that God has given us the Spirit to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He gives us the ability to discern between the good and the evil. So he says in verse 22, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So they depart from the simple faith in Jesus Christ. And here's a simple question to distinguish between who knows the truth and who's been deceived. What do they say about Jesus? You get these guys right here? Oh, wait, I got a picture of them. These guys right here, see them? They're going to come knocking on your door, and they're going to talk about Jesus. And they're going to say really holy-sounding things. But ask them what they actually believe 
about Jesus. They will tell you that Jesus was a good teacher. They will tell you that he was an example to follow. They will also many times tell you that he's the brother of Lucifer. They will also tell you that he was not begotten of God, that he actually was a human being. He wasn't God. Beware. This seems like a simple thing, but what Jesus taught us is that he and the Father are one. And you can know the truth from the error based on who they said they were. Did Jesus ever say that he was the Son of God? Yes. But many people say he never claimed to be God. Well, if he is the Son, then he's in the likeness of God, and deity begets deity. So that matters. And so ask any person you want, if you're not sure, what they believe about Jesus. Who do they believe that he is? And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, we actually get a little insight. Verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, verse 2 says, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. He wasn't just an emanation. He wasn't just a ghost. He was God with human flesh. He was alive. You could touch him. He proved that after his resurrection even. He was able to eat with the disciples. You can't eat if, you're not, if you don't have a body. Verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. So somebody that comes along and says, he's the son of God, they get it. Someone that comes along that says, he was a good example to follow. He was a good man, a wonderful teacher. Here's the problem with that. Very simple. If he's a good man, he's a good example to follow, but he's a liar. Wait a minute. He, he, if he was a wonderful teacher, he taught that he was the son of God. So if someone comes along and says he was a good teacher, but he was a liar, the truth's not in them. So every true Christian has the Holy Spirit that testifies of Jesus, the Son of God. And in Matthew chapter 16, be patient with my page turning today. There's just so much to cover. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus was actually the one that taught the disciples this test. That's where John got it. In verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Well, some are saying that you're John the Baptist, some are saying that you're Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He had so much in, in kind with them. They recognized that he was in the spirit of the prophets. But who was the spirit of the prophets? The Holy Spirit. So that's why they were all so similar. But then he said to them, and this is the important question for us today, because I think many times we go, I know who's false, and so-and-so needs to hear this. But the question becomes for you and I, who do you say that I am? That's the question that Jesus has for us. Do we say he's a good teacher, or do we say that he's the Son of God? And if he's the Son of God, do we give him the authority that we profess that he has in our lives? Is he Lord or is he not? 
If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And so he goes on to say, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For guess what? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the reality is, all of your life hinges on this one confession. Who do you say that Jesus is? And that was the question that we have to test whether or not someone we know truly knows Jesus. And what's interesting is that this teaching that's prominent uh, is prominent in the Jehovah's Witness. It's prominent in the Mormon church. It's prominent in uh, Islam. They say Islam, you know the one thing on the Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock. If you look at a skyline photo of Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock dominates that city. It's golden from the 1600s. It's real gold. And yet what we find out is that in Arabic around the top, you know what it says? Of all the things that they could post there, they could put anything. The whole world would see it. The one thing that it says in Arabic, I said this, I guess it's right to left, although to you it's left to right. But my point is, what it says is, God does not beget anyone and there is no son, essentially. So of all the things that they could post on the Dome of the Rock, it's not any of their own doctrines. It's just against Christianity. God doesn't beget a son. He's not begotten. So they're, they're hacking away at the one thing that makes God in the flesh the man who came to take away the sin of the world. And that's the one thing that all other religions have in common. They're not a way to heaven. They're a way away from Jesus. And every one of them confesses that. They will all say that Jesus was a guru. They'll say that he really came to the Eastern mysticism side, that he was a good teacher, that he had lots of good things to say. But they will all deny the deity of Jesus. And they will all deny that he is the only way back to the Father. Interesting. And we know that he claimed to be the Son of God because in John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. And his disciples even questioned him on this. And he confirmed. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus because of this. They wanted to kill him because of the miracles he did on the Sabbath there in uh, John chapter 5, but they also wanted to kill him because he claimed to be the Son of God. And in verse 23 of this chapter, it says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. So, instruction for us. We need to let the Word of God instruct us in what we believe about Jesus, and we need to anchor our souls to it. The Father promised to give us His Spirit to us who believe. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus told them to wait for the promise of the Spirit that the Father would send. It's the first fruits. It's the dowry. We are the bride of Christ. And so his promise that he was going to come back for us and take us to be with him in the place that he's prepared is he says, I'm going to give you the first fruits of my spirit. I'm going to pour up my spirit upon you that will essentially be the guarantee to, to give you safe passage through this life 
to be with me for eternity. And then in Romans chapter 8, Paul explains that the gift of this promise, and I'm going to turn there. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. says this, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, which is what little Jewish boys say to say, Daddy. We get to call Dad not just Father, but Daddy. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. So our last section, verse 26. These things I've written to you. I don't think I read verse 24. Therefore, let that remain or abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. They will try to deceive Christians. Interestingly enough, most cults actually don't go out and try to make disciples of people who they see as lost. They many times target believers to convert them over to their deeper knowledge of God. And that's what they will tell you. We've got this further truth. You need to read our book on top of your book. And that's what the Mormons do. Those guys, those two dudes right there, they're carrying the Book of Mormon. And, and in many cases, they have been trained to go to believers and talk to them and refute the deity of the Son of God. But many times, cults start with people that went to church but didn't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. So you know what they did? They formulated a God that they could be comfortable with a God that would give them what they wanted and allow them to continue doing what they wanted. Here's the deal. Satan is a deceiver and he's the father of lies. He doesn't care what you believe or do as long as you are kept away from the truth and he'll do anything he can. He'll send guys that are dressed up so nice, you'll be like, hey, look at their suits. They gotta be legit. He's got a badge on that says elder even though he's 16, you know? They come in and they teach you these things. But if he can't beat the church, he'll join it and he'll sow lies in it. Cults don't typically try to reach the lost world. They typically try to corrupt immature Christians with their teachings. So what do we need to do to be ready for this? We need to grow to maturity. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it and be able to give a defense for what we believe. They typically boast of some deeper knowledge. And many of us, might be approached by somebody that sounds very religious and go, you know, I I really don't know that much about what I believe. I know a little bit, and here's the piece I know. And then they'll come in and go, oh, good. Well, let us help you. And they'll be very kind sounding. But know this, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So as we close, What does it mean to abide in Christ? If you look at the last passage we read, the word abide is in there over and over and over. 
What does it mean to abide in him, to remain in him as he has made us alive in him? Well, number one that's important is your fellowship. To have Jesus Christ in common with someone else. Maybe it's a coworker. Hopefully it's the body of Christ. To get together and to have that in common is so important. That's why we give fellowship events. The question you need to ask yourself is, do I have the desire to be around other Christians? That's one of the ways you can tell whether or not that you are abiding in Christ. And then your confession. What do you declare about Jesus? What do you confess about Jesus? Is he the one who has saved you? Have you humbled yourself? Are you someone that tells others, like, I'm nothing without him? I've been getting to say that a lot more lately, and it's been refreshing. Uh, and then your pro- profession. And I'm not talking about your J-O-B. What do you profess? What do you profess about Christ? To profess means to affirm someone's faith in or allegiance to Jesus Christ. Do you want to see people set free and ready for Jesus' return? How are you using the fruit of your lips to help someone else grow? Or would you rather people believe anything except that Jesus is who he proclaimed to be? Would you rather Jesus not cramp your style? If Jesus abides in you, you will be anchored. You won't be able to be deceived. If you know the real $100 bill, if you know the real McCoy Jesus, no one's going to be able to bring a fake one around and you be able to stomach it. You'll be able to tell the difference. So in John chapter 15, I do this all the time, but I love this chapter. Let's close. We've read the word abide over and over and over again. And in John chapter 15, Jesus instructed his disciples about abiding in him. Why? Because he knew people would come to deceive them. Why? Because he knew their faith would be shaken when he was killed. Why? Because abiding in him is the only thing that anchors us. Everything else in life will change. So in John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus speaking says this, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. The world would know that you're disciples of Jesus because your lives will produce fruit that look like Jesus. And so, Father, thank you Thank you for the the Apostle John and his desire to equip the saints. Lord Jesus, there are many many people proclaiming Jesus's that are not you. And Father, my heart, more than anything, is that we would be equipped fully to tell the difference between a false and a true Messiah. Lord Kill the desires in us that are not yours. 
cause us to see Jesus for all that he is, all that he was, and all that he will be when he comes and returns. Lord, we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be drawn away from our true love. And so, Father, we need you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. We need you to instruct us in righteousness. We need you to reveal Jesus in the Old Testament, in the New, as we abide in you daily and and open up your word. Lord, would you reveal Jesus to us for all that he is so that when others come along and claim to know Jesus, we can tell the difference and we can lead our families away from the difference. We can lead ourselves and others to know the real McCoy. Lord Jesus, there is no name, no other name, under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be witnesses of that light so that others may be saved. Lord, we are your ambassadors. Equip us to be what we've called to be. And Lord, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.